Welcome to the best of mortification of spin. Think of it as a brief summer vacation for the podcast that talks about things that count. We'll return soon with all new shows if they haven't already taken away our government grant. And now, the best of mortification of spin. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. It's great to have you with us. My name's Carl Truman. I'm a professor at Grove City College, and I'm here with my friends, Amy Bird, the housewife theologian, and Todd Pruitt, pastor of a PCA church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And today, we're very privileged to have a, a special guest, uh, Father Tom Wayne-Andy. Uh, Father Tom Wayne-Andy is a Franciscan Capuchin priest. He's actually the second Franciscan Capuchin we've had on the podcast because uh, last year we had Archbishop Charles Chaput from uh, Philadelphia, who's also a, a Capuchin friar uh, on the program. Uh, Father Wayne-Andy is a teacher of long standing. Uh, he uh, served on the U.S. Council of Bishops and is now part of the Vatican's International Theological Commission. And... Though many of you may not know this, uh, Orthodox Protestantism does owe Father Wayne a significant debt because he has been one of the most stalwart advocates uh, and defenders of classical theism and the notions of immutable impassibility to emerge in the last 50 years. And we're going to provide a link on the website uh, to a very, very good article that he wrote for the online journal First Thing some years ago that's extremely helpful in uh, clarifying this issue that, as many of you will know, is now highly contested mm-hmm. within Protestant uh, theology. So mm-hmm. it's great to have you with us, Father Wayne Andy. Oh, it's a pleasure and honor to be with you and uh, to speak with you. This is, this is very good. Well, we want to chat to you today particularly about uh, a wonderful new book that's just been published, Jesus Becoming Jesus, A Theological Interpretation of the Synoptic Gospels. It's published by the Catholic University of America Press, and it's part of a project that Father Wayne Andy is now engaged in to, to do a, a large-scale New Testament theology as a systematic theologian. Uh, Father Wayne Andy, what inspired you to to write this book, to, to engage uh, this project? Well, it has an interesting story or history. Uh, many years ago, well, a number of years ago, when I was teaching at Oxford, a good Anglican theologian of, I knew, uh, John Webster, who was Lady Margaret Professor of Theology at Oxford at the time, asked me if I ever thought to do a one-volume systematic theology And I told him, no, I hadn't thought of that, but he encouraged me to do so. So once I left working for the bishops' conference and went on sabbatical, I thought, well, I will do what John suggested that I do. And so my plan was, my plan was to, you know, systematically work through 
the mysteries, the doctrines of the faith. And the manner in which I planned to do this was uh, sort of in keeping with who I am as a historical and systematic theologian. I would, you know, do the creation, incarnation, trinity, salvation. And uh, I would sort of take a nod at scripture. I'm not a scripture scholar, but I thought, well, I'll, you know, sort of take a nod at scripture and then jump into the fathers, which I know very well, and then uh, go into Thomas Aquinas, whom I know, and uh, then tackle some of the contemporary issues. Well, when I started writing the book, actually, I was in Jerusalem. I spent six months of my sabbatical in the Holy Land, and I started it in, uh, in Jerusalem. And so I was starting with the Incarnation. I thought, well, I should make my reverential bow to the infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke. Well, so I started writing about the infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke. And about six weeks into writing this, I was still writing about Matthew and Luke mm. and the infancy narratives. <laughs> and I thought to myself, Lord, what's happening to my systematic book? Mm. And, uh, you know, and, and praying and thinking about it, I thought the Lord said, just stick with the scriptures. Just stick with the scriptures. And so that's how it came about. I dropped the fathers of the church. I dropped Aquinas. And I just focused now on trying to theologically interpret the mysteries of the faith as we find them in the scriptures. My first volume of Jesus Becoming Jesus is exclusively on Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I, I take them together. I don't do them, you know, mm -hmm. separately, but do them together. And so that's how the, the, the book came about. It's not the book I wanted to write or thought I was going to write. It ended up a book which I hope and I think the Lord inspired me to write, even though I had something different in, hmm. in mind. But I enjoyed it immensely. It was a lot of work in a way. But, uh, you know, I, I, I very much enjoyed it. And I think, um, you know, I caught the subtitle is a theological interpretation. As I said, I am not a scripture scholar. I'm a systematic theologian. And, and so I didn't want to get into all the issues that scripture scholars get into uh, because many a times I could not answer some of them. And many a times I didn't want to get into them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to focus on the theology, the theology, the doctrine that is contained within uh, the synoptic, synoptic gospel. One, uh, one of the things I noticed as I was reading the book, and it's, and it's wonderful, um, one of the things I noticed, and, and this has been affirmed to me numerous ways, but it really came through clearly as I was reading your book, is that just as systematic theology obviously benefits from New Testament scholarship. New Testament scholarship, because we believe what we believe about inspiration, and those kind of, New Testament scholarship needs systematic theology. And, uh, and that comes through very clear in the book. And, and I'll just say, though it's a scholarly book and, and written by a monk in the Catholic Church, I was surprised at how little I found that a Protestant cannot wholeheartedly affirm in this book. Very little, actually. And I would very much encourage pastors to add this book to their library and, and for it to supplement not only their reading of the Synoptic Gospels, but their preaching of the Synoptic Gospels. I, I have numerous marks throughout this book um, that I already have uh, ready to go as, as I preach 
uh, sermons leading up to Christmas. And, and then later um, on Easter, I'm going to be doing a sermon series through the Lord's Prayer, and I've got a section marked up that I'm going to be reading in preparation for that. And so Protestants can, can benefit greatly uh, from this book. So whether that was intentional on your part or not, I don't know. But Protestants can be very confident reading this book that they'll glean much. You know, I didn't intentionally write it for Protestants, right? <laughs> write it for Catholics. <laughs> but I'm glad you said that because I think, you know, because I focus on the primary mysteries of our faith, the incarnation, the baptism of Jesus, the profession of faith of Peter, the entrance into Jerusalem, the crucifixion, death, and resurrection. These are doctrines that are, are common to Catholics and Protestants. Mm, right. we, mm-hmm. we all believe uh, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who became man. We all believe that the one God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We all believe that it was through the cross that Jesus saved us and the resurrection to which he gave us new life. Right. And so in focusing uh, almost exclusively on those central doctrines that both Protestants and Catholics hold dear to their heart and know to be true, uh, I'm I'm pleased that uh, you think that uh, you know Protestants would mm-hmm. find find mm-hmm. this book helpfully. Very helpful. much so. The other thing I would want to add is you know, especially for preaching, you know, sometimes I get tired of hearing moralistic homilies. Mm. <laughs> Meaning by that, they end up telling me to be a good guy <laughs> <laughs> in very clever and different ways. But it's the same message. Be yes. Nice. Uh, Many preachers do not preach the mysteries of the faith. How wonderful the incarnation is, or mm. you know, especially the Trinity. You know, yes. how, you know, mm-hmm. But I think my goal, one of my goals, was to help preachers to preach doctrine because it's the doctrine that gives life. Mm. It's the truth of the gospel that gives life. And so I'm, I'm hoping that you know, pastors who read the book will say, you know, I can preach about. You know, doctrinally about Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but mm-hmm. I can actually preach a doctrinal, you know, homily on the significance of Jesus's baptism. So well, you I, do that I, in I, a way that that really leads to doxology as well. I mean, as I was reading the book, it, and it, it is so thoroughly Trinitarian, and there's so much I want to dive into. I think I could spend this whole podcast just talking about the infancy narratives alone. Um, I was blown away by that, but. Um, I think maybe we should back up a little bit and just ask you why you titled it Jesus Becoming Jesus, because that's such a, the, the big theme going throughout the book. Yes, that's interesting. Again, when I was first thinking of writing my systematic theology book that never came to be, <laughs> one of the things I wanted to emphasize was the importance of action. That, you know, it's the act of the incarnation, it's the act of Jesus dying on the cross that was important. And, you know, when I started writing what now became the book, Jesus Becoming Jesus, I saw within, you know, the synoptic narratives how important Jesus's actions are. And so uh, I didn't have the title in mind when I started. It was only about a, way, about a third way through that I realized what I had to title this was uh, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary, you know, she, you will call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. And the same way when the angel appeared in a dream to Joseph, you know, you are to call him Jesus because he's the savior of the world. And so literally, 
at the Annunciation, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus came to be, but he was literally Jesus in embryo. Mm-hmm. He was Jesus, he was Yahweh saves, but he had to enact his name. He had to become Jesus. He had to be Jesus, Yahweh saves. He had to become our Savior. And all his actions, his miracles, you know, the transfiguration, you know, the, the entrance into Jerusalem, or, you know, all the, the Last Supper, all of these things is Jesus, in a sense, prophetically enacting his name. Mm-hmm. He's becoming Jesus the Savior. But it's being prophetic because he definitively enacts his name through his death and resurrection. It's through his death and resurrection that Jesus actually definitively becomes Jesus. And so by emphasizing Jesus' salvific acts throughout his mystery culminating in his passion, death, and resurrection, and sending forth his spirit of Pentecost, that's the point I, I mainly want to get across, how Jesus in his love for us actually enacts the name that God the Father gave him uh, when he was when he was conceived. Uh, and ultimately, Jesus doesn't become Jesus until he comes again at the end of time, because only then will we be thoroughly saved. Only then will we rise from the dead and become like he is. And only then, in the eschaton, and then for all eternity, will will Jesus be. That, yeah, that's the full realization, the culmination of his yes, saving work. Yes. Yeah. One, yeah. One question. So that's how the title came to be. I, You know, God gave him that name. The Father gave him that name. And, you know, Jesus, you know, he had to become the, what the Father named him, and that mm-hmm. is the Savior. Mm-hmm. Here's a point, Father Ben-Andy, where I think a lot of preachers particularly might feel a kind of tension. Uh, on the one hand, God is immutable, and he's impassable. On the other hand, we have the dynamic of the historical narratives. We have Jesus becoming Jesus. And I think that makes some preachers perhaps hesitant other preachers perhaps uncomfortable with how you tie those two things together now as i was reading this book what was what was so wonderful to me was i'm reading a book by a man who is the preeminent advocate and defender of immutability and impassibility at the current time and yet Mm -hmm. he's taking the dynamic Mm -hmm. of the gospel narrative seriously Mm -hmm. how would you advise a preacher to to handle that issue on the one hand, the, the eternal unchangeability of God. On the other hand, the importance of history, the importance of history as it manifests itself in the life right. and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we, you know, I think it's a matter of, of taking the incarnation seriously. Who it is, who is both God and man, is, is, is the Son of God. And as God, he, he is completely perfect, all-powerful, almighty in the traditional classical sense. You know, he is immutable. He doesn't change because no change would make him better than he already is. Mm -hmm. There's no potency for the Son of God to become more the Son of God. He's perfectly the Son of God as the Father. is perfectly the Father. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. But it's precisely this person of the Son who's you know, the perfect image, unchangeable image of the Father and all the Father's glory. And he is the perfect word, the fullness of truth that the Father uh, embodies. That very Son came to exist as one of us. 
as a true human being in all the authenticity of what it means to be human except for sin. And so, you know, what's important for our salvation is that Jesus took upon himself our fallen humanity. He was a member of the race of the fallen race of Adam. And within that humanity, he lived a thoroughly human life. And what's important for our salvation is not that the Son of God suffered as God. That's mm -hmm. not salvific. Right. What's important is that Jesus, the Son of God, bore the weight of our sin, bore the suffering for our sin, and transformed that sinful suffering into a perfect human act of love by his own free will. And through that salvific human suffering, we are reconciled to the Father and made holy. It's the human suffering of the Son of God that's salvific. And all this talk about divine suffering is not on target. It's not, yeah. you know, Jesus suffering as one of us on our behalf right. out of love for his Father and love for right. us. And, and, and what you have just outlined is precisely why uh, the Reformed Protestant scholastics emphasize the fact that when it comes to the doctrine of God and Trinitarianism, Catholics and Protestants are saying the same thing. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of Protestants that aren't saying that anymore. Well, there's, but, yeah, well, there's a lot of Catholics, although sure. I think both, on, I don't know about the Protestants, but on the Catholic side, you know, after my book and other books that came after me, you don't hear about too much from these people who are pushing, you know, God suffers anymore. Mm -hmm. they, they've become quite silent. Yeah, I wish wish that was the case in Protestantism. Yeah, we, yeah, it, yeah unfortunately, we have some, some well-regarded Protestant, even even Reformed Protestant theologians that yeah, uh, yeah. project the kinds of things that you outlined that are true of Jesus in his incarnation, his humanity, and they project that back into the Godhead, which is right. a, a terrible That's error. Right. Yeah, they're, they're, well, ultimately, they're making shipwreck of God and the mm. gospel. Exactly. Because and that and what they don't see and 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 you what you laid out for us so well there what they don't see is the connection between the real saving acts of God in the person of Jesus Christ That's and right. and and why immutability and and a robust Trinitarianism is so essential to that yeah that's one thing I I really love about your writing is even as you are focusing on the salvific acts of Jesus you're thoroughly Trinitarian. In every single angle of what you describe, and so um, I wanted to ask you, like, how does this commitment to who God is shape our reading of the Gospels and and what He does? Well, first of all, thank you. You know, I think the reason I'm Trinitarian, or you know, emphasize the Trinitarian, because I think it's so important that in the sense. All the persons of the Trinity are, are saviors in different ways. In the sense, mm -hmm. if, I, if you notice, you know, I call it, the Father is Father Yahweh saves, mm -hmm. and the Son of the Holy Spirit is Holy Spirit Yahweh saves. No, it's underlining like crazy yep. at that part. Yep. <laughs> and the reason I emphasize that, because every act of salvation is a Trinitarian act. So take, for example... Mm, that's good. Uh, the incarnation, the act of incarnating. It's the Father, out of love for us, 
who wanted to save us, who sent his son into the world. That's his salvific act. It's the son who willingly became man in the womb of Mary and was called Jesus. That's his first salvific act of becoming man. But it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary. And so that was the Holy Spirit salvific act. And, and so the whole, it's one act that's being performed, that of the incarnation, but each of the persons mm. of the Trinity, according to who they are, their own subjectivity, are performing that one act. That one act would not have been accomplished if it wasn't for each of the persons of the Trinity sort of doing their bit. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you see that in, in the baptism of Jesus, you know, where the Father commissions him to set out and to be Savior of the world. And he does so by, by pouring out his commissioning spirit upon him at his baptism. The same would be true on the cross. It's through the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. uh, who allows Jesus to willingly give himself entirely to the Father and it's the Father whose will Jesus is fulfilling on the cross. So every salvific act, every act that Jesus performs is a Trinitarian mm -hmm. act. It's the Son of God as man who's doing it in accordance with the Father's will by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And this is why we want to emphasize things like um, uh, inseparable operations uh, within the Trinity, which, which came up in a Trinitarian controversy a couple of summers ago within Reformed Protestantism, where the writings of some well-known Reformed and Reformed-ish uh, theologians uh, were just outright denying the doctrine of inseparable operations. They, in some ways, practically built walls between the persons of, of, of the Godhead. And what, it's a what, form of tritheism. It, it, I think. it really form is. Of tritheism. It really is. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and what you lay out, well, what you just described there was so rich because again it's this robust trinitarianism that the church has always confessed and yet within the last 100 years yeah, uh, seems yeah. to have struggled with yeah carl mentioned at the beginning of the program and, and the conversation has touched on this a couple of times in, in terms of your work uh, regarding um impassibility and and immutability I, I was first exposed to your work in probably 2001 when I picked up a copy of Does God Suffer? And um, that was the first deep dive I took in, into classical theism other than reading Thomas Oden's systematic theology. And one of the things that might surprise you <laughs> um, is that one of the things that, that really confirmed me of being a, a Reformed Protestant was reading your book on impassibility because it was what pushed me to read the reformed scholastics and now i know that that won't get you any badges in the roman catholic church um, for helping me become a, a a more protestant protestant but what i was reminded of is something that a friend of of ours a systematic theologian named uh, scott swain has said is that you can't be a good protestant un unless you're first a good catholic meaning uh, learning from the first four centuries of the church and and the church fathers and right. that's what some contemporary protestants have left out of the equation of the development of their theology to their detriment unfortunately it's interesting that you bring up the fathers of the church because they are essential you know yes. you know a lot of times catholics want to sort of jump from uh the scriptures to aquinas or the medieval theologians like bonaventure and others Protestants tend to touch up from scripture to the reformers, Luther, mm -hmm. Calvin, and the fathers get missed. 
And when I taught at Oxford for 12 years, I tutored and taught, you know, many, many more Protestants hmm. than I did Catholics right. in Oxford. And I did a lot of teaching, uh, both in the tutorial system at Oxford and in my lectures on the fathers. And what I found was that the Reformed young people there or the Anglicans, they ended up loving the fathers because right. they could connect with them, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, and so, I, you know, and, and the fathers are very big on the Trinity and the incarnation, yes. obviously because of the controversies uh, of the time. But, um, yes, I think the fathers of the church are essential for learning the tradition and, and, and they're so imbued with the scriptures again. You know, I like to think my book is kind of trying to pick up with where the fathers left off, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but you're, you're right. The fathers are very, very important. They're a part of the living tradition of Christianity right. and of our faith and, and, the, and the mysteries that we so love. Indeed. Where is your project going from here, Father and Andy? What's the what's the next volume? What are, what's the projected well, outline? I'm working, I'm working on the Gospel of John right now, hmm. uh, and I have five chapters. Well, I'm working on chapter five right now, but I'm really on chapter four of of the Gospel of John and the Samaritan woman. So I'm hoping, you know, within the next year, year and a half, uh, to finished Jesus Becoming Jesus, Volume 2, A Theological Interpretation of John. I, I bring in also stuff from John's uh, epistles as they become relevant to what's taking place in, in the gospel itself. Uh, you know, one of the things, one of my thesis in writing, working on the gospel of John is, I think that John's gospel really is a theological interpretation of the one charismatic gospel that was preached, you know, that the church preached one kerygma, you know, mm -hmm. that we find in three different versions, in a sense, or three different ways in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But now John is, he, he's obviously doing much better than I did. Well, he's writing his theological interpretation of this one gospel tradition that we find three different ways in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so I'm trying to tie together, you know, uh, John's gospel with the synoptics as much as I think is is possible in a way, you know. But um, I find it very, very exciting trying to unravel John. Everything is so interweaved in John. All the mm. themes are so interweaved, uh, and they keep progressing. It's a magnificent gospel. So that's where I'm working on now. After I finish John, uh, I'm hoping to, to maybe do Acts of the Apostles and Paul, but... I'm 73, and I'd like to get this whole thing done by the time I'm 80. So we'll, ha we'll hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I can do that. I really want to do the book of Revelation. I can't do the, all the scripture stuff that, in one sense, is in the book of Revelation. But there's so much. I mean, the book of Revelation has such a high Christology. Yes. I mean, it's, it's so marvelous. And, of course, it's, it's all eschatological, you know. And so I don't want to get into all the various details to what the visions mean mm. but, or yeah. what they refer to, but you know, I'd love to do finish up with, with uh, the Book of Revelation. Yeah. Hoping I can do, uh, you know, I feel certain I'll get finished with John, and hopefully I can move on to 
the Pauline right. book. Well, you know, in terms of Revelation, there's a wonderful series of novels uh, called Left Behind. <laughs> and, um, you know, they, they lay out a really solid eschatology uh, uh, there. So, yeah, yes. you, you, may, you, may, you may want to check those out. Um, we're, we're joking, Some of course. Of our best coming out of the Protestant church. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we could uh, we could continue this for uh, for a long time. Um, unfortunately, we have to uh, to come to a conclusion. But Father Wine Andy, we are so thankful that you uh, joined us. We have, um, as confirmed uh, Protestants, we've nevertheless enjoyed very much conversations uh, with some of our Roman Catholic friends on issues that historically Protestants and Catholics have agreed upon such right. as uh, the doctrine of God, things like um, the family and the sanctity of life. And so we're happy to, to continue those helpful conversations. And let me just emphasize again what I, what I said at the beginning. Protestants, you will be enriched by Father Juan Andy's work. Um, his book, Does God Suffer?, is extremely important. Um, you will benefit from it greatly. You'll understand when you read that book why people like John Owen said that uh, on some of these matters, uh, we agree completely with Roman Catholics. Thank you for this latest book, Jesus Becoming Jesus. Uh, again, to my Protestant uh, brothers and sisters, this is a wonderful book. To my fellow pastors, you'll want to add this to your uh, library and use it as a resource in your preaching through the Gospels. It's extremely well done. And uh, so, Father Juan Andy, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for joining us. Uh, it's been a fun conversation, and we hope that you've enjoyed hanging out with a few Presbyterians. <laughs> well, I'm I'm more than happy. I'm so you know so pleased that you know that somehow as a Catholic I can contribute to the dialogue between uh, Protestants and Catholics and Evangelicals. I th you know sometimes I think the Protestant Evangelicals are reformed. They, they sometimes are, are more enthusiastic about my books than. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's that. in some ways because the same problem you have within the Reformed tradition mm. is obviously they are present within the yeah. Catholic tradition. Yeah. There are just as many Catholics who push for a passable God or whatever. Exactly. So I'm honored and I'm pleased and I'm happy that I can contribute to this marvelous work that the Holy Spirit's doing of bringing Protestants and Catholics together and that I can make some some contribution, well, contribution good. to this work of the Spirit in our day. Well, thank you so much for being with us. And I just want to remind our audience, uh, encourage them to uh, come to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and uh, you'll find there a link to an article that Father Wanandi wrote for uh, First Things uh, online journal, um, really kind of giving a, a summary and an overview of his work on the doctrine of impassibility. And you'll find that to be very helpful. Again, historically, just exactly what Protestants um, have affirmed about uh, the doctrine of God. And so uh, we'll provide that on our, on our website as well. Just want to remind you that we are a listener-supported podcast. And uh, if you are able to make a contribution so that we can continue to do this work, We'd appreciate it very much. And until next time, this is Todd Pruitt, along with Carl Truman and Amy Bird. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you again very soon. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin.
Be listening for all new episodes of Mortification of Spin beginning July 1st.